Shouldn't be too hard to preach after that. And I invite you to turn with me today uh, to uh, the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews uh, chapter number 2 this morning. The title of our message here today is Because of Easter. I recently was reading in one of David Jeremiah's books, and he tells a story in there about a, a man who was wandering through an art gallery in Glasgow, Scotland. And the museum was bustling with kids who had come that day on a field trip. And a man who was there approached a, a famous painting done by Rembrandt. The name of the painting was The Raising of the Cross. And as the name suggests, the artwork is meant to capture that moment when the cross is being hoisted up by the Roman soldiers and being fixed into place there on Golgotha's hill. Well, one little boy wandered away from his school group and he stood there uh, with that man gazing up in silence at this masterpiece. The man looked over, he saw the little boy and he thought he would test his knowledge. And so he said, Laddie, what do you suppose this picture is about? The little boy answered, he said, Mister, he said, that's a picture of the saddest day ever. That's the day that Jesus died on the cross. The man nodded, he smiled, and he continued his stroll through the art gallery as he went on to look at other paintings and sculptures. Well, several minutes went by, and the man felt a, a tug on his coat. And he looked down, and it was that same boy that he'd met just a few minutes ago. The little boy spoke up. He said, uh, pardon me, sir, but I almost forgot to tell you the most important part. You see that man on the cross back there on that painting? Well, sir, he ain't dead anymore. <laughs> He's alive. <laughs> Kudos to that young evangelist. If Good Friday was the saddest day of history, then Resurrection Sunday is the gladdest day of history. The empty tomb is that day that changed all of history forever. Because of Easter, our faith is not futile. Our failures are not fatal, and our death is not final. I love what uh, Philip Yancey wrote. He said, quote, the resurrection of Christ is the single greatest event of all time. It is the one miracle that redefines all of reality, giving us another way to look at the world. If I take Christ's empty tomb as the starting point, then history's long, slow death march becomes a contradiction. And Easter, a preview of God's ultimate reality for believers. He said, because He lives, then hope, joy, courage, meaning, and salvation flow like lava under the crust of daily life. What a great thought. Because of Easter, Satan no longer has a swagger. Death has lost its sting, and fear has lost its strength. Since Jesus walked out of the tomb, our world has never been the same since. And in Hebrews chapter 2, we have a triumphant passage here about some resurrection realities. And the writer of Hebrews here highlights several theological and practical victories that we have all because of Easter. So if you're taking notes today, I want you to notice number one as we begin in verse 14. And it's this, because of Easter... 
Christ disarmed our foe. Because of Easter, Christ disarmed our foe. Read with me verse 14 together. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, watch this, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. I'm talking to you first of all about our foe, Satan, who was disarmed at Easter. Now if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, there we have the fall of Adam. And ever since then, Satan had wielded a powerful weapon against humanity. You see, Satan was the bully on the block of life. Death was his club that he used to enforce his hold over man. The only way that Satan could be defeated and uh, his grip loosened on this world was to take his most terrible weapon from him and render it ineffective. And the writer in Hebrews is telling us that's exactly what happened through the death and the resurrection of our Lord. By His resurrection, Jesus wrested control of death from Satan and thus disarmed our foe. Listen to what 1 John 3 and verse 8 says, along with what Hebrews writes. That verse says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, friend, Satan has been a loser since day one, since ever he thought he could rebel against God and take a third of the angels with him. Old Martin Luther had a saying, he said, The devil, praise God, was God's devil. What he meant by that is that Satan was a loser the moment that he was thrown out of heaven. In fact, you can study his losing record from one chapter in the Bible to another. You see, from Genesis to Revelation, we have a record of our foe being defeated. Satan was defeated prophetically in Eden. When Jesus Christ, when, when God pronounced in the garden that, uh, that He would come and that He would put His heel on the serpent's head and eventually defeat Him. God announced victory in the garden in Genesis 3. Uh, he was not only defeated prophetically, but He was then defeated spiritually in the wilderness. When Jesus was tested and tempted for 40 days without food, Satan tried to throw everything at Christ, but Christ said, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the, the devil had to run out of the wilderness with his tail tucked between his legs because Jesus, the, the last Adam, showed that he could be tempted in every way and yet he would not fall. He was defeated prophetically. He was defeated spiritually. Hey, and then when we come to the cross on Good Friday, uh, it was uh, the day that Satan was defeated publicly. Colossians 2 said that our Lord made an open shame of him. And then when we come to Hebrews 2, we see that on Easter, that Satan was defeated convincingly. Jesus took his weapon out from his hand, wrested control of it, and friend, when it's in the hand of Jesus, there's no one who can take it away. He was defeated convincingly on Easter. And friend, I'm glad to tell you today, when I turn to the back of the book and I go to Revelation chapter 20, he'll be defeated finally when he's the inaugural one who's thrown into the lake of fire Friend, I'm telling you today, according to the Word of God, Christ has disarmed our foe. 
One sign of Jesus' authority over death is seen in that great vision there in Revelation chapter 1. When John sees that glorified Christ in Revelation 1 and verse 17 and 18, look at what we read right there. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive. Amen. Forevermore. Watch this in verse 18 says, And I have the keys of death. And Hades, look at the authority that Christ has in His reign. Keys stand for power and possession and privilege. The one who has the keys is the one who has control, friends. What does a key do? Well, it locks and it unlocks. It denies or it permits access. Keys liberate or imprison. And the Bible tells us that Jesus possesses the keys to two of man's greatest enemies, the key to death... And the key to Hades. Notice what that means here. The key to death, that speaks of His authority to take life. Uh, He's the Creator, is He not? If He created life, He has the prerogative to take life. And the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed once for a man to die, and after this, the judgment. The Lord decides when it is our time to leave. The psalmist says, the number of my days are written in your book. Jesus has the keys. Not only of death, but He has the key of Hades. Now what is that all about? Hades is the Greek New Testament word for the underworld. And Hades specifically refers to the holding place where the spirits of the unbelieving dead will one day be taken and judged and cast into the lake of fire. The Bible says that Jesus has the key to unlock that final and terrible place of Hades. It's indicative of His authority to consign the souls of sinners to a terrible place where they will await God's wrath and God's judgment. And Jesus, the Bible says, has governmental control over both of these realms. Oh, friend, uh, don't be mistaken. He is coming back. And according to Acts 17, He will be coming back as judge to judge the living and the dead. And Paul told the philosophers on the top of Athenian Hill, in Mars Hill, he said, listen, he's coming back, and the way that you'll know the one who's coming to judge is he's the one who rose from the grave. You see, when, when, when Jesus died, Satan thought he'd won. Couldn't you hear the, the demons of hell laughing on Friday, thinking that they had finally got their victory? But yet Jesus used the greatest weapon in the devil's arsenal to achieve his ultimate victory. You see, death clapped its cruel, tyrannical hands around Jesus. And Satan hissed. I bet he said, ha ha, we've got him now. But the serpent's greatest weapon became God's greatest way to accomplish a stunning victory. You see, Jesus went into the jaws of death. He went through death. And He came out on the other side. And friend, Jesus took Satan's best shot and knocked down. And He got back up again and said, Is that all you've got, devil? He is the undisputed, undefeated champion of love forevermore holding the title holding the deed and the keys of death and Hades you see Jesus took the cross and he made it into his throne and then the empty tomb that became his victory lap friend and when he's coming back he's not coming to take sides he's coming back to take over friend because he's Lord and God 
I love this parable that Donald Gray Barnhouse told in one of his old books. Mr. Barnhouse told the story of a wealthy man who owned a grove of fruit trees. And this, this man loved to walk on his property and admire the beauty of those trees and walk over to an apple tree and, and pluck a juicy apple off and enjoy that. But there was a servant who worked for this rich man who hated his master. And so the jealous enemy devised a plan that he thought would finally strike at the heart of the master. The servant decided that he would go to the estate one night. And he would cut down the master's most beautiful prized tree. So he took his, his hacksaw, he took his axe, he, he took his tools and he began to work all night sweating and straining to cut down this huge tree. His muscles were sore and his hands were blistered. Then the morning sun began to rise. He hadn't yet felled that towering tree so he began to double his efforts, working twice as hard. Finally, the trunk gave way and the wood creaked. And as that, that tree began to fall, he saw the master riding into the grove. There was another man with him. He was coming on his horse. As the final blow was given to the trunk of that tree and it fell over, he threw down his axe, that, that enemy, and he raised his hands. But what he didn't see was that as the, the tree spun, a limb came around and knocked him down to the ground. He was pinned there under that huge branch. The master came riding up, got off of his horse, went over to the man who was laying under the branch. He had his companion by his side. He was cursing. He was spitting there as he laid on the ground with that branch holding him down. The master said to the servant, he said, you thought you would do great harm. But I want to show you what you've really done. He said, this man that I've brought with me is an architect. And he's drawn up plans to build a house here in this grove of trees. And the tree which you toiled all night to cut down and which is now your death happens to be the exact tree that we were coming to cut down today to make room for my master suite. And he said, that tree which is now your death is now also your bitterness. You see, he said to the servant, you worked for me and you did not know it. And now it is in vain. And Donald Gray Barnhouse made this application. He said, so it is with Satan who rebelled against Christ in the very beginning, who plotted and schemed and worked behind the scenes to bring about the, the death of the Son of God. But what the enemy did not know when Christ rose victoriously on that third day, he had worked all along for our God and did not know it. And the victory was given to Christ. You see, he could say to Satan, uh, because of your work, you have uh, now been defeated. And I have risen from this point to build my church and to preach my gospel and to go forward in the victory. You see, when the devil brings up my past, I bring up his future. He may hiss and he may snarl, but our enemy, Satan, is a defeated foe. He can't take my joy. He can't take my hope. He can't have my soul because he's a defeated foe. So we see that number one, because of Easter, Christ has disarmed our foe. Then I want to move on in our text and I want you to see number two, because of Easter, 
Christ has defeated our fear. Christ has defeated our fear. Look what it says also here in verse 15. And deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You probably heard of many phobias that people deal with in our world. There is arachnophobia, that's the fear of spiders. And my wife, precious as she is, she definitely has a fear of spiders. Sometimes she dreams that spiders are coming to get her in the middle of the night and wakes up and I have to calm her down. No, it's just me. <laughs> arachnophobia. Some have claustrophobia, that's the fear of, of tight spaces. There's also glossophobia, that's the fear of public speaking. Some are deathly afraid of having to speak in front of a crowd. But there's no greater fear than what plagues humanity than what is called thanatophobia. That's the fear of death. And if living through this last year, if living through COVID did anything in 2020, what it revealed was humanity's darkest fears brought to the surface. Did you know that a group of doctors and psychologists noted in a, in a nationwide study Listen to this. The number one fear in 2020 was not just death as a result of contracting COVID, but it was, they said, the fear of dying alone. You know, if you know Christ, you don't die alone. I'm with you always, he says. I never leave you. I never forsake you. I'm the, I'm the good shepherd who walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And what the writer here in Hebrews is saying is, is, look, when he defeated death, he also defeated the fear that is associated with that. Years ago, there was two Christian doctors, Dr. S.I. McMillan and Dr. David Stern, and they wrote a powerful book called None of These Diseases. Listen to what they observed in that book. They said, quote, After sitting beside hundreds of deathbeds, we have seen this recurring pattern. People with strong faith tend to die in peace, experiencing even what might be called dying grace, while people without faith die in terror and in torment. Do you have the peace that passes all understanding today, friend? You can't get it from the world. You can't buy it or earn it. You won't read it from a book or learn it from a guru. The only way you can get it is you've got to know the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Hebrews points out in this text that we read that really there's only two ways to face death. Through fear or through faith. And friend, if you're unsaved today, if you don't know the Lord in a real and a personal way, you ought to fear death. Because after death, there, there is no second chance for salvation. And, and for the unsaved, the Bible says that what awaits after the grave is eternal separation from God. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's why Christ died. He took our punishment. He took our place for the sins that we committed against a holy God. And He offers us not only salvation, but eternal life in the here and the hereafter. But if you're saved today, oh, if you're saved and born again, if you know the risen one, then the fear of death should be overcome by our faith in Christ. You see, because we know that Satan is a vanquished adversary. So the only play that the devil may have today on the saved is to lie to them and get them to believe as if the resurrection never happened. That's what Satan wants to do. He can't take back his weapon, but he can make us live in fear. 
He can steal our joy. He can take our peace. He can give us a night of anxiety and restless sleep. He can do all these things. And friend, I'm telling you today, don't give in to the fear. If you know the one who rose and has scars in his hands and feet, you don't have to fear today disease or death or debt or whatever life might throw your way. If he rose, friend, he's with you through it all. Friend, there's a lot worse things in life than dying. Amen? A lot worse things in life than dying. And one of them is, as the text points out, to live in the fear of death. To live under death's suppression and oppression. Because, friend, if you're living in fear, you're not really living at all, are you? Right? I'm preaching today. I thought about Lazarus. You remember John chapter 11? That great passage there where Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. The last one that he rises before he goes to his own death and resurrection. And right before Jesus brought Lazarus back, he gave that great promise in John 11 and verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here's the thing that the Bible doesn't tell us about that miracle. <laughs> you ever thought about this? Lazarus died once, and one day he'd have to die again. I imagine what was, what was happening in paradise was, was Moses and Lazarus sitting down about to enjoy a conversation there in paradise. And all of a sudden, echoing through the halls of paradise, the voice of an angel, Lazarus! 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 He knew his name had been called. Moses, I'll come back and we'll finish this conversation later. The master called. And he got up out of his tomb and he walked out. But friend, here's the thing that I'm getting at. Why should we fear death when we know the one who holds the keys of death and who will be waiting for us on the other side? Friend, I'm telling you, I don't think Lazarus was afraid to die again because he had been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and know the one who was going to be there through it all. That's why Paul, when he comes to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, <laughs> you got to love it. He yells, he, he pins these words, basically saying, Boo, devil! Look at what he says. Oh, death, where is your victory? We call that trash-talking basketball. He's talking trash to death and to Satan. Where is your sting, oh, death? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I grew up with a papaw who was a mountain man. You have a grandma or grandpa who was a, just an old mountain person, rough as a cob on the outside, but wise in the, in the ways of survival. My papaw, he was a survivor of the Great Depression. And his ways were a little backward and strange. I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, he always raised the garden. And that's where I learned a lot of uh, gardening skills from him. He never threw anything away. You ever have a grandparent like that? I mean, when stuff was hard to come by, you didn't throw it away and you'd go to throw something away and say, No, no, 
I might need that one day. You, you'd see Papa every, every time you go out to him in the garden or you, he'd be out mowing grass or working, he'd always have a drip of tobacco juice coming down the corner of his mouth. He might have a Papa like that. Say amen. That was my Papa. And as kids, I can remember running around barefoot in the summer and in the spring. And you know what happens when you run around barefoot in these mountains, don't you? Especially when the, when the grass starts coming out and the clover starts coming out, you're going to step on a honeybee. And I stepped on many, many honeybees, and my foot swelled up. And Papa, he said, oh, come here, let me put some tobacco juice on that and walk it off, son, you'll be all right. I stepped on several bees, and I started to get scared of them. You know, it just takes one or two of those things to kind of put a little fear in you as a little, little kid. I was about Daniel's age, and so I started wearing shoes everywhere. Because I didn't want Papa's tobacco juice on my foot again. <laughs> I can remember as a kid, though, as a small kid, walking with my Papa, and we were going along, and a, a bee came and landed on his arm. And I was kind of scared of bees, so I kind of stepped back, and I watched him. He took his hand, and he put his hand over that bee. And you could hear it, you could hear it buzzing under his hand. And he said, he said, Derek, he said, you don't have to be scared. And he pushed his hand down on that old bee, and the buzzing stopped. And he raised his hand. And I can still remember it. He picked that little bee up, and he flicked it off. And he said, see there? And the stinger was still pulsating in his hand, in his, in his arm. And he pulled that sting out. He said, he can only sting once and he already stung me. So you're okay, son. Hey, hey, glory, amen. I've got a Savior who took the sting out of death. Satan gave him his best shot. But he has already taken the sting out of death. Friend, there's nothing to fear because Christ has disarmed our enemy. All the enemy can do is buzz and hiss and, and, and make noise in our lives no more than what we allow him to do. But friend, I've got a risen Savior today. He has defeated our fear. And then thirdly, let me finish with this. Because of Easter, Christ has disarmed our foe. He's defeated our fear. And then number three, I want you to see this. Because of Easter, Christ has deepened our faith. Oh, friend, I got such a blessing in my study when I read these verses. I just stood up in the middle of my study and I said, Woohoo! Glory! I can't wait to preach this. Look at what it says here in verse 16. The Bible says this, For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Wow, what a verse. Because Christ rose from the dead, our faith takes on new meaning, doesn't it? And the writer here in Hebrews finishes out this passage by touching on two powerful truths that came out of the tomb with Jesus. The first one we read there in verse 16, and notice I put it under this heading right here, we have special favor in salvation. For surely it is not the angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. What this verse is saying to us is utterly astounding, friend. You see, the salvation plan of God was not for the angelic hosts, but it was for fallen humanity. It was for you and me. In other words, 
Jesus didn't die and rise again for the angels. The Bible says He did it here for the seed of Abraham. That's not only those ethnically who descend from Abraham, that is the Jewish people, but according to Galatians 3.29, spiritually, that's all who are exercising faith in Christ the same way that Abraham exercised faith in the Old Testament. I have faith. In Christ, just like Abraham was looking forward, I look back. But we're both looking to the same Savior. Now, you've got to pair this verse with some others that we have in the New Testament. In Ephesians 3.10 and in 1 Peter 1.12, look at what these verses say. Paul says here in Ephesians, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might know, watch this, being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, look, the angels are learning something about the plan of God through what Christ is doing through the church. Notice what Peter says. Peter adds to this. He comments that angels are so interested in God's salvation of humanity that he says in verse 12, these are the things into which angels long to look. Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, God is educating the angels through what He is doing in the church. In other words, the church is the blackboard upon which God is writing His lessons for the angels to learn the deep things of the salvation and the love of God. In other words, you say, preacher, what do the angels need to learn? Well, something that an angel can't learn or doesn't know about is an angel doesn't have a testimony. An angel can never sing amazing grace because an angel's never been lost and pulled out of the depths and cleaned off and given new life and hope because Christ didn't come and die for the angels. The Bible said He came for the seed of Abraham. That's you and that's me, friend. Let me boil it down to you like this. I don't know if some of you believe it today. Think of the irony. Angels are so zealous that they want to understand God's grace. I believe they stand on tiptoe looking over the banister of heaven, marveling at the miracle of salvation. We know the Bible says in Luke 15 that when one sinner repents, the angels break out in praise. Friend, that's exactly the reverse of the way we would think of it. We're the ones who are enamored by the angels. We're the ones who want to know more, but the Bible says here that the redeemed, a friend, you as a blood-bought, saved, born-again child of God, you've got a blessing that an angel can't even understand, friend, because uh, He came for you. He died for you. He rose for you. Not for Gabriel, not for Michael, not for the angelic host, but for little old me. Oh, friend... The angels may have rolled away the stone on Easter morning, but Jesus rolled away the burden of my sin. The angels may have got to announce the empty tomb, but I get to announce that about the day that He brought me back from the dead. The angels may have serenaded Jesus as He passed through the stratosphere. But one day, friend, I'm going to get to get in the middle of all that heavenly worship and I'm going to get to sing a song that even the angels can't sing because I've been saved. I have special favor from a risen Jesus. 
Oh, one day I'm going to get to sit down with old Gabe and old Michael and I want to hear the story. Hey guys, what was it like up here? What did it, what was the sound like when the day I got saved? What was the song like? What did you sing up here? And then I get to sing my chorus. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. Friend, I'm telling you, you've got a blessing that even an angel can't understand. You've got a testimony. We have special favor in salvation. And then listen to this. We have a sympathizing friend in suffering. Oh, praise God for this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of his people. The last way our faith is deepened because of Easter is that we have a sympathizing high priest. Listen, who knows what it is like to face the worst things that can be thrown at somebody. My Jesus knows. He knows what it is like to stand beside the grave and weep tears. He knows what it is like to be rejected and hated and spit upon. He knows what it is like to taste death. And He knows the depth of the valley that I'm going through. You see, friend, my Jesus has scars. <laughs> and every scar tells a story that He came he lived. He died. And the scars will be a forever testimony to you and I of the victory that He won. So I can go through anything in this life. Every pain, every tear, every heartache we face, even death. Jesus will be there. He sympathizes with us. You see, when we go to Christ, we're not going to a lifeless idol. We're not going to just a historical figure. We're not going to a sanitized, detached, emotionless God that's never felt loss, never felt rejection or agony. I'm going to a death-defying Christ with wounds of love who can give me the next little bit of strength that I need to take a step. Because I'm going to heaven. Amen? And God's going to help me. Several years ago, Decision Magazine carried the story of a man named Nard Pugyal. Obviously not from around here. Nard grew up in a remote village in the Philippines. He'd never heard the gospel until one day in 1956, a strange white man stumbled into his village proclaiming a message. That man was Dick Rowe. He told the elders of Nard's village, I have come to learn your language and to write down that language and give you God's word. They asked Dick Rowe, who is your God? He said, he's the true living God, the creator God, the redeemer God who came in the person of Jesus, died on a cross and rose from the dead. Nard, this young man, was so enamored with Dick's winsome personality that he followed the missionary around everywhere. He was like a shadow. 
For seven years, Dick Rowe lived among Nard's people there in that small village until he had to return to the United States and raise more funds for his mission effort. But he'd done enough language work to complete the gospel of Mark. And he left that young man, Nard, with a copy of the gospel of Mark in his own language. And he said, read this, and when I come back, tell me what you think about it. So for the first time in his life, Nard sat down and he read the story of Jesus' life and ministry in his own language. Do you imagine? Here's what he said. The further I read, the more distressed I felt. A mob of people came to get Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he do wrong? They accused him of all kinds of false things. They mocked him. They spat upon him. They scourged him. They put a crown of thorns on him. It was excruciating to read how they forced him to carry a wooden cross and nailed him to it. He said, deep in my heart, a hatred of God swelled. I shook my fists at the heaven reading the gospel for the first time. How could you leave your son abandoned? You didn't even help him. He said, with all my strength, he threw the gospel of Mark into the forest. For several days, though, he was in torment. Nard said he went away under terrible conviction. Couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, had no peace. You ever been there before? <laughs> he was under total conviction. So he said he woke up early one morning and he went back into the forest where he had thrown that copy of the gospel of Mark. And he searched through the weeds and through the high bushes and there he found it. And he said, I've got to read. He stopped at chapter 15. I've got to read to the end of chapter 16 to see what happens. Here's what he said happened. I went, into, uh, I went to the center of the village and stood, stood there beside the well. And with all my focus, I started reading in. And I was overjoyed as I came to Mark 16 and I learned that Jesus came out of the grave. I went and I stood up on the middle of the village well and I yelled out in my own tongue, He did it! He did it! He came back from the grave! The whole village ran out to see what he was blabbering on about. When Dick Rowe, listen to this, returned back to the village, Nard told him how he had read the Gospel of Mark gave his life to Jesus Christ. And at the age of 15, he started being a co-missionary with Dick Rowe. He helped to complete the New Testament in his people's language. And in a few years, they handed out hundreds of Bibles to their own people. And God birthed a revival. And there's a little pocket of believers over there in the Philippines, all because one man got a hold of the Gospel of Mark, read it, and it changed his life. You know why? Because this isn't about religion. This isn't just about church attendance. This isn't about just being a good person or checking something off of a religious box. I'm talking about the real and the living Christ who when He touches you, He changes you utterly from the inside out. And friend, if you don't know Him today, uh, you've heard the gospel and I would adjure you, I would encourage you and compel you to come and receive Him because He's full of joy. He's full of mercy and grace. And as our musicians are coming, I wonder if anybody needs to respond today. He's a good God. He's a faithful God. He loves you. 
And He wants to give you hope and peace. Friend, if you don't know this Christ that I've been preaching about, you have the opportunity to come forward. Why, why does it have to be public? Because Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who's in heaven. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you come and respond to this message, Christ will meet you where you are. You don't have to get cleaned up. Your life doesn't have to be in order. You come to Him as you are, broken, messed up, sinful. Hey, it doesn't matter. You come, and Christ will meet you, and He'll change your life.